questions uh, that are, are already here with us this morning. Want to start out with um, sensory stuff. Someone wrote in and says, my son has sensitive hearing. He hears background noise a lot, and this makes him stay indoors because of the noisy surroundings. <coughs> what do you recommend? And I know that we've had uh, several people write into the show before talking about how different periods during the day are, are hard for kids, that some of you who uh, live in places where you have the old-fashioned gymnasiums where during the winter the kids eat in the gymnasiums and they're very mm -hmm. echoey, mm -hmm. uh, it can be really difficult. But in this particular instance, doesn't like to be outdoors. I know. And it's this rough. is, it is rough, but it's, it's actually a really good thing that the family has identified what mm -hmm. the issue is. I think a lot of our kids have that particular problem. I think it's uh, more uh, common than we think. Um, some of my, uh, uh, one of our older kids who recovered years ago told me that, you know, the, the ver it was things that he heard that were very, very loud were things like the door closing mm -hmm. or, you know, various uh, other sounds in the environment and what was very faint and difficult for him to focus on because it was almost like background noise was language. Mm. So it was kind of an interesting thing to think about. Um, you, I, the thing with hearing is that you can acclimate to various things. I don't know, you know, we have our uh, kids, our, any teenagers, you know, how they listen to music really loud. I mean, part of it is because they get used to it and then they don't realize how loud it is. So our hearing is, is sort of over time gets used to various things and adjusts. What I would suggest for this family is um, in, there's two things you can do. You can make the child a little bit more comfortable um, and that would be by giving him um, like those noise reduction headphones, like mm -hmm. Bose headphones, in places where uh, you just have to go somewhere and he doesn't want to go outside or whatever it is, or really noisy environments. A lot of times parents tell me it's like if you go to, let's say, airports or places where um, like events or parties mm -hmm. where there's a lot of noise, it really disturbs our kids. Mm -hmm. um, but that isn't really something that you can do functionally forever because you know you don't want your child to be walking around with Bose headphones all the time. Although it's much more socially acceptable right now than it, it used is, to it be is. because it everywhere is. you see teenagers it's like a fashion accessory now <laughs> with, the, with the headphones on. It's very <laughs> true um, but what you can do also is you can record the outside background mm -hmm. noises and then bring them into his environment and shape them in so he starts to adjust so what you would do is and we've done this for a long time with school noises mm -hmm. so you would record a variety of different outside noises like just uh, outdoors uh, playground let's say or any any environment that he's typically exposed to and you put that recording in his room or in I you know always assuming our kids are in ABA but they're not necessarily mm -hmm. just in inside mm -hmm. and you initially put it on a very very low volume mm -hmm. and then over the course of let's say a week two weeks you very gradually increase the volume so that it starts to become more uh, pervasive in his mm -hmm. in his hearing or in his what he perceives and um, but make sure that you do it so slowly that he's still able to function really well in the inside environment and um, so that he gradually you get to a point where the volume is high enough mm -hmm. so that it really sounds like background noise mm -hmm. uh, 
<clears throat> but he's still functional and still able to cope with it. Um, if you do that, then going outside will gradually become a lot easier for him. It's a process. It might take a month. You shape it in. Um, and then, of course, you uh, take him outside and he won't really find much of a difference. That's so clever, I have yeah, to say. It's just shaping. Yeah. Uh, but I, I, it wouldn't occur to me. Uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? And so that's really, really clever and something that you can really, as we say, move the dial on what's right. happening with your child in a very clever, clever way. Right. I absolutely love that. Uh, okay, uh, interesting question here. How do you teach a child to have conversations when all they want to do is monologue? <laughs> that's a great question. Isn't it? It's a great question because I love our kids. They are so at a certain point before they really start to understand theory of mind or, or other people's perspectives. Um, they're very egocentric. You know, their whole world is about the things they like. And um, a lot of our more higher functioning kids or Asperger's kids have particular topics that they're so good at. Like mm -hmm. they've memorized all of geography or all of, you know, like the presidents and all that sort of stuff. And that's all they really want to talk about. Yeah. This is also really, I guess the core of how to deal with this is also sort of a shaping procedure. So it's really common when kids are young, if this is sort of something that develops over time and typically developing kids, but when all kids, when they're young, they're really just, if you measure the amount of conversation, conversation being different from monologue in terms of it's uh, back and forth taking turns, right? Mm -hmm. If you measure the amount of conversation in um, on a subject that the child likes versus a subject that the child doesn't like, it's a, there's a huge difference, right? Mm -hmm. So t kids typically tend to just want to talk about the things they like. As we get older, the only reason that we are able to really do more conversational is because um, we understand that other people have different interests and uh, socially the appropriate thing is to give other people the opportunity to express themselves mm -hmm. and there's a billion things around that like if you don't then you will lose friends and you notice that people are walking away from you and you don't want that to happen all this sort of stuff yeah. which our kids really can't do they don't do they don't recognize the signs of oh i'm like going on and on about my topic right? right so i guess for this parent the easiest way i mean there's several different things you have to teach the child um not just being able to stop and take breaks but more importantly I guess it would be being able to listen to something else and then the ability to put that in between their own comments mm -hmm. but it's it's more than that Shannon because conversation is one person says something the other person typically builds on it yeah and so that that building on the comment has to do with things like you you're either negating it mm -hmm. or you're agreeing with it or you're adding specific details details to it or you're taking it in an abstract form and applying it to other situations mm -hmm. that's how conversation is mm -hmm. right you confirm all that sort of stuff is conversation so the best um, instead of you know it would take me two hours to go through all the steps of teaching conversation the best thing for this parent is to go to our um, social curriculum in I think it's in social yes it's in social in the in skills mm -hmm. 
um, which is online, and the social curriculum has a subsection called social conversation. Mm -hmm. And social conversation has a section that really breaks down all the steps of conversation. And it'll be probably about 10 different lessons. So there are things like um, initiating a conversation, um, you know, taking turns in conversation, listening to other people, recognizing cues uh, about other people's interest or disinterest in your conversation, um, knowing how to repair a conversation, right. uh, knowing how to join conversation with a group versus an individual. Maybe there's more than 10. Maybe there's about 15 lessons mm -hmm. that really all have to just do with bringing it all together for conversation yeah. um, so and you sort of start with the earliest one and you just work your way up but you have to teach that yeah. I mean that's a process and again and just you know because the child for this particular child really prefers monologue um, I would say you would probably at the same time that you're trying to teach the conversational skills also want to work on just theory of mind stuff just yeah. perspective taking stuff because once our kids are able to take someone else's perspective, a lot of things change, yeah. a lot changes. Yeah. They actually do start to ask questions yeah. and understand things. And also with this child it's possible, one of the prerequisite programs for social conversation is um, asking questions, yeah. being able to ask and so, you know, our statement question yeah. lesson and all that. So, but there's a lot of lessons that lead to this ability and I would take it at a step at a time. Yeah. If I, uh, you know, if you're, if the child is very, com is able to have long dialogue or long monologue, let's say, mm -hmm. then it would be important to go to skills, look at the social area and just go all the way back to what skills the child's missing because there yeah. could be others that I've missed here that would also help with it's, this. It, as, I, as you're talking, I was thinking back to all the different lessons that Jem had because mm -hmm. he was taught using all the lessons that are in skills. And it was interesting to me because I didn't always understand how the pieces fit together. Um, and there are still things that we continue yeah. to work on yeah. because, you know, he's not 18. And, right. and I see with his completely neurotypical peers that they need to still work on skills. Oh. That, you know, no question. For, for conversation, but the the questions in particular, it's so so interesting to see when it all starts to gel and cohese. Yes, um, and and I, I think this is on topic. But the we've been reading the Little House on the Prairie books with mm -hmm. him mm -hmm. to kind of get a sense of what happened a long time ago. Mm -hmm. And he stopped me the other day and asked me a question. And I I tell you what, it took my breath away because I thought. In, the, in early days, I prayed for him to ask a question, and I prayed for him to be able to have conversation right, with me and right. for it to be on topic. Right. And he stopped me and said, why does she do that? And mm -hmm. I said, what? And he said, why does she keep saying Laura instead of I? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it was this amazing sort of, pers like he was That's thinking awesome. in perspective taking Absolutely. for somebody who's been dead and buried for so long. Right. He said, why doesn't she just say, say I, I instead of Laura? That's so awesome. Really yeah. a huge moment for Absolutely. me. Absolutely. That's um, a great question. So I, I offer that up because we went through all those lessons and it can see over, seem overwhelming when you're looking, oh my gosh, if I want to get to conversation, I have to do this, 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 and this. Yeah, it's But I saw firsthand that when you do it, amazing things happen. Definitely. And I mean, it's really interesting for me and I think one of the 
successes at CARD, honestly, and I think a lot of it has to just do with the number of people we have at CARD and how everybody contributes to building on the curriculum. But, you know, what you just mentioned is interesting as well, because if you take any very advanced lesson like social conversation and you just go back a step and you think, okay, this is really dependent on the whole area of uh, perspective taking, mm -hmm. but then you take that back a further step and you realize this is very dependent on being able to ask questions. Yeah. And something like what Jen said goes even further back and says, okay, this is actually the type of question he asked also requires him to have a good knowledge of pronoun use. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And pronoun use is one of like level two lessons, you know, and so it's kind of like you have to really fill in the blocks all the yeah. way back, otherwise it just doesn't make sense. But having said that, on the topic of conversation, there's, I would say, probably 30% of adults, typically functioning adults, don't really have perspective taking or good perspective taking, which is why they have such a hard time socially. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of times with adults, they kind of um, learn to overcome it in certain settings, mm -hmm. but in general, um, a lot of people we know uh, have a very hard time understanding why their actions led to someone else's yeah. disappointment or something like yeah. that. So it's kind of interesting. It is interesting. And, and I also am noticing as I watch myself and other people engage in perspective taking that people might be good at it in one arena but not in another because Absolutely. they don't understand the social rules. Absolutely. And I see that for myself that I go, oh, I don't know what the social rules are in this circumstance. Right. And right. that's why that's I'm, very true. I'm not having success with this thing that I'm doing or, or I'm frustrated and don't understand what's happening. Sure. It's very sure. fascinating. That's why I love so much talking with Nick, Nick Yates, our, yeah. our markets, because Nick's one, so unusual in the sense that he, it's almost like he's, he's studied uh, the process that he went through. Mm -hmm. And he has really interesting comments about it because he, like you, these types of things, he kind of, I, I feel like he still, to this day continues to, and he's just about finishing college. Yeah, he, any minute now. Any minute now. <laughs> to this day, I think Nick still really analyzes situations in his yeah. life and applies some of these things to these lessons to life, you know? Yeah, and I think, absolutely. I mean, that's how it is. If, yeah. you, if you think of people as a whole, some people are better in social settings than others. Yeah. They're all still classified yeah. normal or typical. Yeah and successful in their own right, right in different right, areas right. and yeah and, and in some particular settings it wouldn't even be appropriate to be that social you know if you're yeah. let's say i go into our uh, technology department here and it's a completely different setting than if <laughs> yes. i go into hr yes you know hr everybody's chatting and happy <laughs> yeah. and you go into it no one's talking you know? yeah. it's a whole different thing I, I i forayed into it the other day to ask a minecraft question and then it was very chatty yeah uh, I, I'm, I'm even thinking about uh because so many kids on the spectrum are fascinated with this game, Minecraft, Minecraft yeah. and it's a very social thing. And so we're thinking about doing a little segment and I'm thinking about pulling some of the IT people in to talk about it because I learned so much as a parent that I need to be aware of oh my for kids playing this game. You have to get Sonny, my son, on, on oh, this show. Oh, he's a master it. at Minecraft. He really is. He like You should see the things he builds with Minecraft. He's been telling me for ages that I, and we are actually contacting the uh, the folks in Sweden who uh -huh. actually originally made it because um, the way that they've designed this game is so 
it's just attractive to kids. Yes. It's pretty amazing. And Sonny's been telling me for ages that I yeah. should really look into Minecraft. Because another group here in the States took Minecraft and um, I think their website is minecraftedu.com, which is oh. kind of, and they've turned the concepts of Minecraft into something that you can use in classrooms. Oh, so some teachers are already out. doing this, yeah. Yeah, that would explode my child's head. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it just blows mine. Fascinating. All right. Well, we should take a break, but we'll come back with more of your questions for Dr. Doreen Grampachet after these messages. Welcome back to Ask Dr. Doreen. Dr. Doreen Grampachet is here answering your questions. The next question that we have, this is just an absolutely fascinating one. My three-year-old daughter insists on using the bathroom in every establishment we set foot in. <laughs> Even if she just used the bathroom in the last five minutes, she does not use the bathroom this often at home, but she insists and will yell if not accommodated in every single business. Right. Isn't that fascinating? <laughs> that guy, I can just picture this oh little three-year-old girl. I know, it's uh, so cute. Yeah. Well, I have so many questions around this before I can give any advice. Okay. But I don't, I'm not sure if she actually does use, does she void, like does she actually go or does she yeah. just, you know, go to the bathroom and, and pretend to go or try to go and, and yeah. it isn't successful. It just, it, the fact that, the fact that she does it when she doesn't need to mm -hmm. and the fact which is one thing to deal with the other one is um the whole concept of that she yells if she doesn't get to go yeah so that means that okay so there's two separate things here if she actually does go each time mm -hmm. then we need to make sure that she can hold for longer periods so okay. i assume you know already as a parent that she can. She does. She only does this. In other words, the stimulus that provokes this is a new place. Okay. Right. So the very easy answer to this is, don't let her go. Oh. Don't let her go. She will scream. It's okay. She'll get over it. And what you do is, again, bring in shaping procedures. You go to a new place or business and she wants to go and you say no we're going to do this and then you do something for two minutes and you leave okay so you shorten her uh, exposure to the, the or the opportunity so you really start with a very uh, and you can you would have to teach this so you'd have to go to places where you don't really need to go uh -huh. and uh, you know she'll ask to go to the uh -huh. bathroom and you'll say no we're done we're leaving okay. and then you leave and then the next time you go back to the place or a new place she'll say i have to go and you'll say uh, no i only need to do something really quickly and let's say you go up the elevator and come back and you leave uh -huh. And so, and then you gradually increase the duration of time that you're at the new place. Uh -huh. Let her tantrum, let her have, fight it over, you know, get everything out and right. so on. But if she doesn't have to go, you don't go. You go on a, you keep her on a schedule. You make sure that she's going perhaps every half hour or an hour. Depends on her regular need. Okay. But don't fear the fact that she'll yell and scream and all this. Now, why does she do this? Yeah. Let's talk about that for a second. Anything that becomes a routine that we can't really explain mm -hmm. uh, is, in my mind, typically has to do with some level of anxiety or it's like one of the OCD, obsessive compulsive type behaviors mm -hmm. that we do. The fact that she wants to, and I, like, these are other questions I don't know. I'm assuming she'll ask to go right when you get to a new place. Sounds and it's, that way. It's sort of like, 
she's establishing her territory. It's kind of like a territoriality type thing where I'll go to the bathroom um, and mark my territory. It's kind of like, uh, okay, now I feel more comfortable in this setting. It's just a habit. Uh, another thing could be, what does she do in the bathroom? Right. Perhaps it's not really the going to the bathroom. Maybe it's washing the hands that's more enticing to her. Or oh, maybe that's okay. what... So make sure that you figure out if there's a specific feature to going to the bathroom um, that is attractive to her. Uh, maybe at some point she saw a bathroom that she saw is very cute or something and yeah. she's looking to see what bathrooms look like. The, that all changes how you deal with it. Okay. But um, really, the, I guess the quick, fast answer to this is you never want to change your behavior because you fear how your child will react if you don't, you know, like you never want to walk on eggshells around your child, never ever, because then the child learns that yelling is the best way to control you. And so you just, that's just that's fascinating always to me a big rule. I, you know, and it's so good, I want to sort of crochet that on a pillow because yeah. I don't yeah. think that I do that on a daily basis. There are some things that I go, well, you know what? Um, it's not that big of a deal. Right. Like my, right. my thing in my head when I was thinking was, well, you know, so they want to use the bathroom. How hard is it to go to the bathroom? You take them, show, the show them the bathroom, they do whatever they're going to do, and then you go on with your day. But I definitely, as soon as you said that, I realized, oh my goodness, then you get into a pattern of now we're stuck in it and it becomes an inflexibility. And it sounds like it already is a pattern. Yeah. And if it wasn't, you know, for me, I agree with you, Shannon. Certain, sometimes parents will present things to me and I'll think, oh, well, that's not a big deal. Mm -hmm. But it is a big deal for the family. Yeah. And that's what's important is that, you know, the, that parent has noticed that this is already getting to a point where it's too rigid. Right. And the more, um, at certain ages, by the way, and she's very, very young, I have to say this, this is very important. When you're very young, and three is even way too young, but having said that, with typical kids, mm -hmm. I think it's somewhere around age maybe five to eight or five to ten, that period of time, a lot of kids have anxiety because there's other stuff that their environment, their life is changing, right? right. They're in school and you, you might be going to middle school now after elementary and things are just changing in their lives and they have to adjust to a lot of things. Mm -hmm. So they develop some slight obsessive behaviors. Mm -hmm. A lot of children do. We, okay. A lot of children do. And there would be things like one child might be very uh, organized. Mm -hmm. And they'll like really start to organize all their clothes, mm -hmm. and then they'll be very upset if someone messes up their drawers or something. So it's their way of coping, right? So another child will maybe um, just have to, and you might not even know about it as a parent, but like another child may have to, when they go to bed, have a specific routine of the doors have to be closed. Uh, you know, I'll check to make sure the lights are the way they're supposed to be. Like, you know, things get to a point where they're getting a little regimented mm -hmm. and those are normal things um, because when we 
produce order in our environment, it reduces our anxiety because it gives us a sense of control over what's going to happen next. So right. it reduces fear and anxiety and that's what OCD is all about. But see, obsessive compulsive behavior is all about you have an obsession and you do a compulsion that reduces. Mm -hmm. So to some extent in normal life, we do this, right? right. I worry that I might have uh, decay in my teeth. So I very routinely will brush my teeth at least twice a day. Mm -hmm. right? You could consider that an obsession about my teeth and a compulsion, but okay. it's not because it's adaptive. Right. So anything that becomes not adaptive, then is really problematic. So in other words, you know, you might have an obsession about something or just a generalized anxiety, and mm -hmm. then you'll do these routines that really have nothing to do with it, but they make you feel better. Right. You know, they're like people who um, will have to go and find a certain object and buy that object, and mm -hmm. then it really makes them feel better if they have a hundred right. of that object. Right. This is, it's just non-adaptive. It's not right. functional. And so you just have to ask yourself, like, for the, for the parent, obviously, yeah. it's become an issue. Yeah. And the sooner you try to kind of get rid of that, the better. I'm wondering how much of it is sort of the blind leading the blind, though. I know that a lot of autism moms that I know admit to and I admit to being OCD. So if we're OCD, right, and my, my thing is I'm always concerned about where is my OCD glomming off onto my child, and I've heard lots of other moms say that. But are we yeah. the people who should be in charge <laughs> No, making sure that our child you actually, doesn't do obsessive well, compulsive no, things. No, that's the thing. You actually are the perfect people to be in charge of it because you understand what it's like to have okay. anxiety and okay. want to try to reduce the anxiety. So that's perfectly fine. It's just... And we don't give in to it, though. Well, don't, don't give in to it to the point where the child develops these um, meaningless routines yeah. that then start to take away from life right so he, right now it might not be an issue but it may become an issue for this child yeah. because uh, let's say first of all it might be an issue already right now because if, if she has to do this and if she doesn't do this she starts to yell then what if you're in a rush yeah and she might start to miss various other aspects of her life because she has to go check the bathroom yeah um, you know or as she gets older if she maintains this and her friends might find it funny and make fun of her. There's a million things around yeah. why we need to have flexibility in our lives. Yeah. So, you know, as long as you keep an eye on how dysfunctional is it becoming mm -hmm. and and you alter that yeah. um, and, you, you know, give your child something else that's more functional that gives a level of safety. For instance, uh, a lot of children carry toys around with them. Mm -hmm. That's a that's just a safety thing. Hoarding is in order to to when you feel anxious, you hoard. Mm -hmm. I mean, so basically, holding an, a stuffed animal or holding a blanket or holding a toy or something is always something that reduces our anxiety. It makes us feel safe. Um, or give your child like a necklace or something mm -hmm. that they can touch, and that can be something that they go to right. when they feel anxious in a new setting. So there are other things that are let, that are more just Function. part of life and don't okay. look odd. Okay. Yeah. So, but Wonderful. it is an issue for the parent. I understand. I would, but you know, it goes back to this whole thing. We do have to pick our battles. There's yeah. no question Absolutely. we pick our battles. But 
don't be afraid. I mean, I know a lot of our kids, like Jam, for instance, they get better and better and better and better, and we, we're so happy with where they are that we start to give in. But I always tell parents that you, if whatever you give in on is what will stay in the, in the world of your child. So if you yeah. want your child to change, you have to change. Yeah. You have to be willing to let her yell. Yeah, that's that is the biggest change for parents, and, yeah. and you just have to be willing to do that. And I think what you were saying about make sure that you're scheduling it so that you're just going to go in for a couple of minutes. Yeah, that, that makes seems it easier. To be key too. Yeah. If you know you have to go shopping because you have to get the groceries, and you're trying to implement this, you're gonna you're gonna have a really difficult time. Right. No. So really work on this yeah. as a separate thing, like schedule times when you go to a building and leave, go to a building, yeah. leave, and let her she'll acclimate. I'm telling you, like yeah. after three or four times. She'll She'll get it. She'll yeah. stop. And um, she'll find something else to yeah. help her feel at ease. We didn't have the bathroom thing, but we went through a period of time. We cycled through when we went when we would go into a grocery store. Jem would insist that he had to go and look at the birthday cake displays. Right. And he would tantrum and hit me in the head if it didn't happen. Right. And Art Wilkie um, actually helped us to, to solve that. that. And I, I uh, this the famous conversation that I always say that I yelled at Art because he was telling me, you know, here's what you want to do and here's how you want to, you know, protect yourself so that you're not being hit but get him in the car seat you're gonna leave if something happens and and I yelled at art and said where is my purse in this scenario art? Yeah. where is my purse tell me where my purse is and art very sweetly looked at me and said you're gonna wear a fanny pack for a little while until yeah. you get this behavior under control and I went oh okay yeah um yeah. but I I would have to take Jem to the store when I didn't have to do shopping and we would go in and as soon as uh, you know he would ask for the birthday cakes and I would say we're not gonna look at the birthday cakes right now and if any chance happened we left immediately right but it only worked because I wasn't actually there to shop I would have to go yes, at midnight and do my shopping yes yes it, you know which was a little bit crazy except that within a week my child wasn't hitting me in the head and there was nothing crazy about that right that right. was great right <laughs> and honestly it's just hard because yeah. we have so much going on in our lives yeah. and it's hard to hear your child scream yes I mean when I yes. give the when I give the basic very basic lecture on ABA I always talk about about how uh, you know our kids do various behaviors and they yell because they've learned that that's a way to maintain you know that that's sort of they know that you will let them get away with it yeah. but the bigger issue is you're also being reinforced during this time because when you allow the child to get what they want you get the reward of not having to see your child yell. Yeah. And when you see true. your child scream and yell, that's a huge punishment for parents. Yeah. And I'll tell you that. I sat yeah. outside my daughter's room for uh, over a year because she wouldn't go to sleep and she was yelling and screaming and tantruming and whatever it was. And thank God they're older now, but I, mean, I couldn't do it now anymore. I'm too old to do it now. But you know, everyone goes through this kind yes. of stuff because you just have to let the child know that it doesn't matter. You can scream and yell. Yeah. I'm not letting you do something that's meaningless. I love the idea of not letting your life be ruled by being afraid of what your child is going to do. I think yes, that's, yes, huge, that's huge, huge and key. Okay, we should take another break and we'll come back with more questions for Dr. Doreen Grampachet. Stick with us. Welcome back to Ask Dr. Doreen. We're here with Dr. Doreen Grampachet, a true expert in the field of autism. Such a joy Thank to have you, you here answering you questions. Much. And uh, this is a really interesting question that I, I hear a lot in this neighborhood. How do I instill some reality in my 22-year-old high-functioning daughter? I want her to work and she 
she's qualified to be a cashier, but she wants to be the manager. <laughs> uh, gosh, let's think about that. So, and mom or dad or whoever's writing in is, is uh, I guess, implying that she's not qualified to be the manager. Because I, I, I think, and we, we've heard this from a lot of parents, that when, the, when they're, they're older, realistic. yeah, that, they're, that their expectation, I don't know that it's just kids on the autism spectrum, by the way, too. It seems like there is a generation of kids who want to go into jobs that are not entry level. Okay. Uh, and that, yeah, and that, uh, you know, they have an expectation, I want to make a good living, I want it, but they, they don't understand that you have to work your way up to that position, that you don't right. walk in and become the manager. Well, I mean, I think if that's the case with this family, you just kind of described what they have to do. In other words, what I would do is probably, and I'm just making assumptions here because I don't really know what's going on with her, but if that's the case and she doesn't realize that you can't be manager because you're not qualified, then what I would do is I would probably list the, um, all the different things that you need to know to become manager. Mm -hmm. And one of them would be being a cashier. Okay. So I would say you need to be a cashier, you need to be a stock I don't know what they're called, the people who stop right, in the back. Right. You need to be, um, you know, this, that, and all the other things. And once you've done all of that, then you would be qualified to be manager. So let's talk about that. Why don't you start with being a cashier for this period of time. Then if you want to learn another thing, uh -huh. then you can learn those during this time. And then that'll help the individual realize what it means to be a manager. I mean, being a manager is very broad and maybe abstract things mm -hmm. so people don't realize being a manager means all these other things so you'd have to like break it down and not just the job types but perhaps like you would have to uh, solve the problems of all the other employees. Mm -hmm. You would have to do evaluations on all the other employees. You would have to maybe fire someone when it's time. Mm -hmm. You would have to learn all the laws that have to go with firing someone. So you'd want to kind of list it. First of all, your daughter might not be interested after she really understands. Right. 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 Um, so it really is sounding like an executive functions thing to me. Yeah, yeah. And I think, uh, I mean, it's fun. that's actually, I've never come across something like that, but it does sound very interesting in terms of, I just want to make sure that I understood what it is she sees as being a manager. What aspect of that appeals to her? Is it just making more money yeah. or is it being the boss right um and if it's being the boss you need to itemize sort of all the bad things about being the boss <laughs> right as well as just the fact that this is the only area that what would you do if like you had a problem with this like, yeah. you don't know any accounting you need to know accounting to right. manage a store all the all prerequisites sort of and all and, the, and all you know what don't kill her hopes just right. list them out if she's still interested great she'll need the next two or three years to get that right all those experiences and all very interesting. Yeah. Uh, another question. My son's school wants to provide an aid for him. How do I know if the aid is qualified? Oh, gosh. That is such a hard, hard situation. Um, hmm. How do you know? Well, first of all, you will definitely want to do some observations. And I would suggest that you do the observations um, 
like notify the school at the last minute. The school mm -hmm. will allow parents to drop in for like 20 minutes at mm -hmm. a time or something. It'll be very hard to have someone who's a professional do observations because they usually schools don't like that. Mm -hmm. But um, you're gonna have to observe. We have a whole list of on our website like what is a good uh, ABA provider some of those characteristics kind of have to do with being an aide but I would say the the worst aides I've seen mm -hmm. okay I've seen the worst and I think the best mm -hmm. the best the biggest th issue is the aide needs to be 100% um, I guess focused on their job mm -hmm. and being an aide in school is often one of those where you just have to have a sense of responsibility yourself because no one's really paying attention to you the teacher certainly is going to be very very busy yeah. and might even want your the aide to do a lot of errands and stuff for the teacher because mm -hmm. sometimes the teachers are just overwhelmed with all the kids they have to deal with so the number one thing is you meet the aides they give you the worst I've seen is aides who you know leave the child and take 10 breaks to go have a smoke or something and they are just absent you know they don't care every time I'd go to observe an aide they, she was outside somewhere it's just like that's not good so you need to make sure the aide is with your child. Mm -hmm. um, second thing is, in terms of basic training, I would really want the aide to go through some of the trainings that teach the aide what, what they're supposed to be doing. We have all this stuff on our IBT website, Institute for Behavioral Training. I, I would go on there if I were you and pick some of the school teacher stuff, mm -hmm. trainings, and make sure your aide understands the basic concepts of ABA and how to deal with ABA is just, you know, the right way to increase good behaviors and decrease bad behaviors. Just you can apply it to anyone. So they yeah. should learn that. Um, and then I would say you need some system of the aide communicating with you on a regular basis, like a diary or something, mm -hmm. so that you know they're doing mm -hmm. what they're supposed to be doing. Oftentimes, aides don't even have a plan. They don't know. So when we work with aides, they join our team and we really tell them what they're supposed to be doing. The I guess the overall job of an aide is to generalize the things the child has learned in their home program or in other environments and make sure the child is able to follow instructions from the teacher and do their academic work, but then also to socialize appropriately. So. That involves the aid knowing and learning how to get your child to interact with other children and um, be appropriate on the playground and during lunch and all these sort of stuff. We, our aides are our therapists, so they go through a massive amount of training because this is a pretty important job. It's yeah. a very important role. And, you know, over time and due to pressure from school districts and due to lack of funding, we've allowed districts to assign the aid and that we would train them. It is sometimes they will give us a really fant fantastic person. Mm -hmm. More often, though, unfortunately, they will give us people who really just don't want to be there. Right. So it goes like anything else, like a therapist. You need to make sure this is someone who's dedicated to their job and they take yeah. it seriously. And then training, you can train them. You can yeah. give them all the IBT training and they'll start to understand. And then guidance, like you really need a supervisor or someone who's running the show overall on your child's program to to 
tell the aide what their goal is. Yeah. Because honestly, Shannon, I don't think people even ever look at the IEP. Like an IEP is written and no one really pays much attention to it over yeah. the course of the year. So You know, one of the things that the TACA moms recommend, I shouldn't say just moms because the TACA dads too, is taking the IEP and the BIP and putting them in a double, one of those sheet protectors, running it off and giving it the first day of school with a magnet attached to it so that each person on the team has right. it and can reference it so it's not sitting in a drawer. That doesn't guarantee that they're going to read it, nor but it makes it, it much more likely. It, yeah, and then in many cases, the AP, you know, here in LA, some of the districts don't allow us to write more than three goals. Uh, yeah, well. So, you know, the IEPs are not that high quality most of the time, too. That's the problem. Frustrating. Yeah. Frustrating.